0: Hey there, romantics! I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe,
0: rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a
1: Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support.
0: If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of romance.
1: Thank you so much for listening. <sighs> <sighs> i'm morgan i'm isabeau and this is Woman's.
0: a podcast about my favorite murder fan fiction about victorian london about
1: murder again about house parties gone wrong
0: about the lake district paging alan partridge right
1: about falling in love with the wrong person at the wrong time.
0: <laughs> Never! But the book doesn't know it. About a murder mystery
1: house party. That is surprisingly unfun and unmysterious.
0: <laughs> I guess it's about class. It's definitely about fucking the police. About dusky addicts. Dusky did you just say
1: dusty? I did, but also dusky because it's like dark whenever they go through this
0: stuff. Racially ambiguous addict. <laughs> but most of all, it's about that first thing romance novels and ourselves. ourselves. This week, we are going to discuss The Lystical Darling A Lady's Guide to Mischief and Mayhem by Amanda Collins.
1: Yeah. I was told by various social media outlets that I follow uh, on Twitter and other places that this was going to be catnip for me. And so I dutifully got it because I love when people say that there is catnip for me. Which is how I brought it to your attention.
0: What aspects were going to be catnip for you? What got you excited?
1: The fact that it's a historical, the fact that the main character, our heroine, has a job running a newspaper, and that it was a historical taking place in Victorian times rather than the Regency. I'm kind of tired of the Regency at the moment.
0: A little little Regencyed out, huh? I am. Let's lower the stays to cover our tummies. <laughs> I actually ended up Googling the history of the term Mary Widow. Ah. And would you believe it? Shakespeare? The corset type was named after the opera.
1: Oh, that makes sense to me.
0: Yeah. And actually, in one of the film productions of the opera adaptations, one of the lines was, a man had to invent the merry widow. No woman would ever do that to another woman. Hmm. Which I think is interesting as we head into this discussion. I think so too. That's a good place to sort of contextualize
1: our conversation.
0: So I'm going to read the back of the book, but I actually want to start with the blurb on the cover because talk about catnip. Of all the crime scenes in the world, she walks into his twice. So good. So good. That is such a good blurb. <laughs> Holy smokes. I know. All right, back of the book. An intrepid female reporter matches wits with a serious, sexy detective in award-winning author Manda Collins' fun and flirty historical rom-com. England, 1865. Sorry, I should say Dateline. England, 1865. As one of England's most notorious newspaper columnists, Lady Catherine Bascombe believes knowledge is power and she's determined to inform and educate the ladies of London on the nefarious and deadly criminals, all of that is hyphenated, who are preying on the fairer sex. When her reporting leads to the arrest of a notorious killer, however, Catherine flees to a country house party to escape her newfound notoriety, only to witness a murder on her very first night. And when the lead detective accuses Catherine of inflaming rather than informing the public with her column, she vows to prove him wrong. Detective Inspector Andrew Eversham's refusal to compromise his investigation nearly cost him his own career, and he blames Catherine. To avoid bad publicity, his superiors are pressuring him to solve cases quickly rather than correctly. Yep. Knowing glance to Isabeau. Not that Isabeau has done that. (laughs) (laughs) Eyebrows, eyebrows. Eyebrows, eyebrows. It was more of an eyebrows, eyebrows, not an accusatory. (laughs) All of those crimes, all of those innocent people you've locked up in your capacity as an adjunct professor. When he discovers she's the key witness... In a new crime, he's determined to prevent the beautiful widow from once again wreaking havoc on his case. I don't know why I giggled. Yet as Catherine proves surprisingly insightful and Andrew impresses Catherine with his lethal competency, both are forced to admit the fire between them is more flirtatious than furious. But to explore the passion between them,
1: they'll need to catch a killer. What a back of the book. I'm like, you know, you were so right that blurb 100% got me on all of the lists because it also kind of made it feel like a second chance. And everybody knows I really love a second chance. And it's like none of those things, though.
0: It's not a second chance. I would like to talk about some key character components about Andrew that are missing from the back of the book. Would you care to speak to some key character components that are missing from Kate's story? Sure.
1: So we know from the back of the book that Kate's a widow. What is not inferred is that she had a really tumultuous and terrible marriage. She was upper class before she married, continues to be a lady. She received the newspaper, which is now making money because of her good business sense, because her husband's dead. And she's in charge of herself and feels very strongly about that. She hooks up with this, platonically hooks up with this really fun cookbook writer, Caroline goes by caro caro which is a great nickname btw classic british aristocracy style totally and she's got the weird cat and they decide at a dinner party that women aren't told enough right there have been four murders in london nothing seems to connect all the victims and women should know because two of the victims were women
0: And if we don't know, we don't know how to protect ourselves. And mostly women should only get involved in things that other women are already involved in. Definitely. So there's
1: a soapbox moment in the first 15 pages. The prologue. Right. Caro and Catherine, our heroine, hook up. And they start a column called A Lady's Guide to Mischief and Mayhem, which doesn't make any sense because they're ostensibly trying to warn the public. And they go to the last victim who was a woman. They go to the last place that she was seen alive. They meet a waitress there and question her. And it turns out that nobody at Scotland Yard had done their job and interviewed this person.
0: And they discover new evidence. They discover new evidence
1: and an actual description of the person who might be the murderer.
0: And what do they do with that information?
1: Instead of going to the police, who missed it anyway, they publish it immediately.
0: Yeah, in their column. In a column.
1: In a column.
0: Not an article, a column. The house party that Kate goes to. Is not to avoid
1: the notoriety that she's just gotten according to the back of the book. So that's wrong. She goes to the house party of her dear childhood friend, Val Thornfield. Or is Thornfield the name of the house? Thornfield is the house. (laughs) In the Lake District. In the Lake District. Everything comes together here at Womance.
0: Yeah. I do want to apologize to any of our listeners across the pond. First of all, if you've been listening to the Jane Eyre series, I want to apologize for my terrible accent (laughs) of not too many chapters ago. I just remembered that that happened. So I, I want to apologize again. And then I also want to apologize that all of my knowledge of your geography comes from Alan Partridge specials. I will apologize
1: for nothing, as this book takes great pains to make fun of Americans.
0: Yeah! She also lives in like Florida.
1: Yeah, she lives on the Gulf Coast. So the depiction of the Americans in this story was like pretty negative, which I thought was both like funny. But every time it happened, it was like petting a cat the wrong way.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God, that is exactly the sensation. It absolutely was petting a cat the wrong way. What I find fascinating is that so there's this American father and his daughter and he's a merchant, uh, I think mining, which is like the worst. If you can imagine, (laughs) people who made money in mining we're not cool people and we're still suffering in this country today because of the exploitative practices that they began in the Victorian era but anyways so he has his daughter in England because he's trying to marry her off to get her a title he's trying to bargain wealth for a title right Mm -hmm. and the book constantly likes to point out his hypocrisy and also like his lack of manners he's far too in your face he's far too direct meanwhile this book is doing this most ham-fisted method possible of critiquing Americans. And sure enough, the author is American. So embarrassing on a couple of levels. (laughs) It was like such a
1: choice. There were moments where the house party where we meet the Americans felt extremely cinematic. Like there were moments where I felt like I was watching a dinner at Downton Abbey or Gosford Park to be really kind. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: But there are so many films, at least, that take place like murder happening at a house party.
1: Right. Like the first episode of Downton, the Turkish prince dies. Gosford Park centers on a murder. This is at least the third or fourth romance novel I've read where a murder takes place at a house party because like there are all those dark corners and people are wandering off and you are shoved together with people who are uncouth and trying to marry their daughters into a penniless earldom. So that happened. All right. The What else can I say about Catherine that the back of the book doesn't really elucidate?
0: There's a murder at a house party movie that I think would change a lot of people's lives that I want to look up to recommend. Mm -hmm. It's French.
1: Mm. They take dinner very seriously over there. While you're doing that, the other thing that you need to know about Catherine that this house party sort of illuminates is that she takes umbrage when people try to give her direct orders and she can be kind of petulant about that and the whole reason why she is like that is because her parents kept her under lock and key and then basically sold her into marriage to a much older man who was cruel to her. So all of her personality is based on that trauma.
0: Yeah, exactly. The movie is called The Rules of the Game. Mm. Uh, directed by Renoir, that Renoir's son became a filmmaker. Oh, wow! And he's so handsome. If you like big, beefy, red-headed people, you'll be very... Mm. <laughs> he appeared in a few of his dad's paintings as a small beefy redheaded boy amazing the rules of the game it's just fabulous the rules of the game. Yeah, so like there's a lot in the ingredients
1: of this text that when I first read about it, and I think it was EW or one of the listicles that was like,
0: You're gonna love this. God, Entertainment Weekly? A lot
1: of people were posting about this book. And I was like, Oh man, it's a historical, it's a house party, it could be second chance based on that blurb, and it has murder. It's got Isabeau and Morgan
0: all over it. Let's talk about the murder. Let's talk about the murder. Because what brings our hero to this house party so he's taken off the case because he missed he didn't actually miss this key piece of evidence he just put his trust in the wrong detective to do the research for him and uh, that detective ends up getting put in charge of the case immediately makes an arrest based solely on the physical description of the murderer provided by the barmaid which yes can happen
1: but also like sandy haired tall variously handsome under the age of 40 and a well-dressed knobbed seems to describe quite Quite a few men at the time.
0: Yeah. And like, fair enough. Like, it's not like the book is like, they made a good choice in arresting this guy based solely on his description. But it's never critical of the fact that the two women published this evidence in a newspaper without going to the police, without considering the ramifications of that, there could have even been street justice related to this sort of thing, right? Totally. It's not like Ted Bundy's bug, of which, by the way, he was one of four men in the Pacific Northwest who owned that car when it was pointed out that that was the car that was abducting people from the lake who all went missing that day. He was one of four people, and he still got away, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, why would you... Not that actual crime has any bearing on the world of this book. But like, it never problematizes those choices by the women, except to be like, you put too much pressure on the bad police to get an innocent man arrested. But there's so many other stakes here.
1: Well, Andrew does bring up the fact that like, she put the barmaid in danger by not telling her that like they were going to publish her account and then also like just doing it and not telling her that it had been published. And so Andrew has to really take her to task. And then there's this moment where it's so clear that Catherine, our heroine, who we are supposed to be rooting for, had never even considered the consequences of her actions.
0: No, and further then later on in the book, our hero like tries to make her feel better by saying like, if you hadn't published that, another newspaper would have. How, Andrew, how?
1: (laughs) Because the book has already shown us that everyone is discounted women.
0: You know, all of those other reporters who were interviewing that exact same barmaid. Totally. How? Anyways, so Andrew, so he ends up at the house party because lo and behold, our heroine Kate discovers an actual dead body the steward of her good friend val and the steward of the house of her good friend val so andrew is the son of a vicar chaplain he's the son of a county vicar but that county vicar county vicar who used to be nobility but yes. married below his station mm-hmm. so he's been cast into this role as a middle class person and decided to become a detective and now he doesn't fit in with the other detectives who call him lord and he doesn't fit in with the aristocracy who call him a cop so obviously he's dealing with a lot of shit but he is very honest he's a very honest he's a good cop whatever that means a good detective okay so i just want to know what do you think is a good cop that's such a great question morgan Such a good question. So like,
1: I actually, I've been thinking about this a lot because I think that I was a victim of what I would call good cop propaganda, especially of the mid to late 90s, right? So we've got like Commissioner Gordon of Batman. Right, right. Who's like a well-intentioned. He's always being put down by politicians. He doesn't have enough money for his detectives. But there are also bad cops in Batman, right? Lots of them. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. Including Commissioner Gordon, who is bringing on a (laughs) vigilante. bonkers
1: choice on the part of Commissioner Gordon.
0: And being like, fuck my daughter.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's fine. She's going too. She has her own outfit. It's great. There's Commissioner Gordon. And then if you were at all familiar with the HBO show Oz, they spent a lot of time talking about the difference between good cops and bad cops. There's the Dennis Quaid film, The Big Easy, about dirty cops in New Orleans. And he's the one and only good cop. So it's weird because like whenever I think of good cop, it's always in the context context of bad cops, dirty cops, or like a system that doesn't want cops to do their job well. Yeah. Which this book is a hundred percent like in that vein of like good cop.
0: There's also like more recent pieces like True Detective is very Mm -hmm. much a part of this. I was thinking about this when I think of a good cop I always think of someone who's either a detective or about to become a detective. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the most recent pieces of RPF or RPP real person propaganda would be Paul Holes, who was the cold case detective who closed the Golden State Killer case. He gets a lot of credit. He does. Especially from My Favorite Murder. If you don't know what My Favorite Murder is, it's a podcast where two women, a professional comedy writer and stand-up comedian named Karen, and a professional personality. She had previously had a show on Food TV about cocktails named Georgia. And they tell each other stories about murders, real murders. I discovered the podcast when I was in my first job and I ran out of true crime books on Audible that I was interested in. And so I opened up the iTunes podcast app and I searched murder. They had six episodes out at the time.
1: Oh, early adopter.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they were almost impossible to listen to because they'd clearly like recorded on like their phones or something without like even a phone microphone. You know, and I ate it up. And then I found other, I don't want to say better, different true crime podcasts. I haven't listened to my favorite murder in a while, but I was not surprised to see the word murderino included in the dedication of this book because this is basically my favorite murder fanfic. Caro is clearly Georgia and our heroine, Kate, is clearly Karen from that show. So true crime is a phenomenon. It is, deeply. Karen and Georgia make a lot of money. To me, it feels inextricable from this idea of a good cop. Mm, That's a really
1: good point. I also think it's inextricable from its female audience, because one of the things that people love to talk about is like, did you know that women are interested in murder?
0: They love that.
1: Like, I can't tell you how many like effing New York Times articles I've read would start with that tag which this book also kind of starts with because they start at that dinner party where Caro and Kate meet and they're like no women should know this stuff also women are interested in reading this stuff
0: yeah but they also like this book is a text that's really struggling with its own relationship with true crime Mm-hmm. which I can relate to. Longtime listeners know that I spent a great deal of my adolescence in an unfinished basement on the internet reading Murderpedia. Mm-hmm. We've also had this discussion where it's also kind of uncool, where like you can relate because you hear someone is into sci-fi and then you talk to them and it turns out that they're just into the new Star Wars movies or something, right? So I hear a lot of people being like I'm into true crime and then they're really just into My Favorite Murder, which My Favorite Murder has a lot going for it besides discussion of murder, but I've wrestled with my interest, my personal fascination with true crime for a long time. And the dichotomy between a good cop and a bad cop, as you put it, was that a good cop follows the rules and a bad cop breaks the rules, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't problematize the rules themselves. Mm-hmm. Reading this book and petting the cat the wrong way on all of the things she says are worthwhile about women's interest in true crime, right? Which are like, I'm sorry to say, talk about it with your therapist. Maybe these are flimsy reasons you like true crime. It's not about protecting yourself. There is no piece of information that you could learn about a serial killer that would protect you from a serial killer. If you're a white woman, why are you bothering to learn about Jeffrey Dahmer? He wasn't interested in you. John Wayne Gacy. He wasn't interested in you. It's not actually anything about safety. It's not about any kind of social value. There's this moment where Caro is at dinner and they're talking about this commandments killer. And she says, doesn't it take away his power a little bit to talk about him like this? Absolutely not. The opposite of that is true. One of the facts we know about serial killers is that they really enjoy the public attention.
1: Yeah, the notoriety.
0: The notoriety. Anne Rice had that really harrowing experience where she found out that the Green River killer attended one of her book signings just to hear her talk about him. Mm-hmm. Because she had been doing research on him.
1: Yeah, and this book doesn't engage with that at all. No. Which feels like a missed opportunity.
0: And it's a really hard thing to engage with. Mm-hmm. And it forces me to confront the fact that I as a person, I happen to really like rules. As much as I bristle against them, as much as I, you know, politically or whatever. Like I am so relieved that there are speed limits because how would I know if I was wasting my time or how would I know if I was endangering others if there wasn't a sign telling me how fast I should go and some good cop, right? Because I'm a white lady who would pull someone over if they were endangering me or wasting my time by going too slow. I'm so glad that there are speed limits, right? It makes my life easier. True crime not only reinforces this idea about rules and like their own importance in our lives, it also reinforces certain ideologies that get brought up even in this text but not really picked at properly, like the idea that like people of a certain socioeconomic status are more inclined towards crime. And the book has that moment where it's like, oh, no, obviously that's not true, right? It has our heroine bristle against that statement. But then later on, the book is like, wow, I guess the commandment killer is active because they're just acting out what was done to them by their bad parent and doesn't acknowledge the fact we have this really this interest in like a one to one ratio on violent criminals. They are violent because one person did violence unto them. But it doesn't take into consideration all of the people who are abused as children who do not go on to become abusers and this is how I, I really feel like it's actually a billion to one and we are all a part of that billion the culture we consume and create the messages we reinforce even on this show even in our little pocket even in romance perhaps even especially in romance and then also the kinds of crimes that get covered right there's <laughs> that famous stand-up bit where he gets the audience to immediately know the name of Natalie Holloway Mm-hmm. but even now sitting here in all of my, like, I'm a big true crime fan. I can't name off the top of my head A single black woman victim.
1: Because we're interested in certain kinds of victims. And I think you bring up a really good point here that this text doesn't, to use your words, pick at. And I think that's exactly right. Because we start this book, four people are already dead. There are two men and two women. We only get the name of the last two victims. And we're only really interested in Betty, Mm -hmm. right? And so then it's like, we've already erased two murder victims, which is a weird choice in a text like this that I think is interested in that. And also we get this titillating detail that the killer very much like in Seven is leaving commandments
0: on the people. Right, right.
1: And there's this very weird moment where Betty has been murdered and she has the commandment written on her that says honor thy father and mother.
0: And like everyone
1: starts blaming the victim where it's like well she didn't, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the main character Kate is like it doesn't matter what she did or did do right she didn't deserve to die which is like this weird conversation about how sin in a victim like the way in which we're looking for rules right like what did you do what didn't you do how do we write a column so we don't blame the victim but we also quote unquote inform the public to stay safe and it's like that's not the thing here and then like very much like seven this book breaks its own rules because like so we've got the four commandment murders in london we end up at the house. And we lose all the commandments.
0: Which, by the way, does anything speak more clearly to our own dysfunctional relationship with true crime than the fact that David Fincher couldn't follow his own rules in a movie? <laughs> like one of the most meticulous filmmakers. But like, God, Seven is so sexy, like
1: as a film. Like I was thinking so much about that movie while I was reading this book. Of course. And I was thinking about like, you know, like Seven did a better job at this point. And like to even think about that is such a weird thing to have a book do where it's like, it's it's so much calling up the body of work. It's so subconsciously referential or even consciously referential.
0: It's not consciously calling forth actual crime it's calling forth crimes from popular culture. There isn't a well-known killer who followed the Ten Commandments. There are well-known killers who were considered missionary killers, but their mission was mostly in their own head, that God was speaking directly to them. And also probably mostly bullshit. Looking right at you, son of Sam. I do not think that you actually thought your neighbor's dog was a demon telling you to kill people. But I think in Ryan Murphy's American Horror Story, there's a Commandments killer. Mm Mm-hmm. In David Venture Seven, it's a Seven Deadly Sins-based killer, we have this idea of, like, religious murder mm-hmm. that keeps surfacing in popular culture. And
1: I think it's exactly as you say, to do with these rules. Because, like, the thing about a religious killer is that the rules are already written, and most of us, if we live in the West, have a passing familiarity with
0: them. That makes it easy for popular culture to adapt. Right. Shorthand. Not that this book takes any liberties with shorthand. Stuff for making assumptions. But I think the other aspect of it is you made this point earlier. Like I pointed out, this kind of killer, this sort of Christian commandments, sin-based killer, really only explicitly exists in fiction that's mostly consumed by women. And you made the really elegant point of women suffer as much at the hand of religion as they do at the hand of of violent criminals.
1: Women are uniquely harmed in both instances.
0: But I think that thing you said about it just being rules, reinforcing rules. So I think that's perfect (laughs) as well. But I think there's also something to the fact that the rules of true crime reinforce my personal importance in the world as a white woman. Mm -hmm. My death matters. And my death is inevitable, even if it's not a violent death. My abuse at the hands of men is inevitable, right? Like, you know, getting catcalled on the street is an act of abuse, right? I've had my ass grabbed. I've had my hair pulled in a bar. I've had romantic partners who were insistent about doing things with me that I didn't want to do, right? And I I have had the most mild of experiences, which are still deeply intense. But when I visit true crime, I wonder if a part of myself isn't reassured that if a line wasn't crossed, I wouldn't be vindicated. And that I, specifically, my life is of value, even if I am destroyed in this particular way. I'm certainly that your death then would be
1: narrativized and made meaning of.
0: Yes, exactly. Do you know what's so sick?
1: That's a privilege.
0: That's a privilege.
1: Yeah, that's a privilege. Not all women get that.
0: And in fact, the stranglers, Green River Stranglers,
1: all I want to say is like the Scranton Strangler.
0: Yeah. There were two of them. They were brothers-in-law. Hmm. But they specifically said that and this is this is very 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 dark. But they explicitly said, "We started off with black sex workers." Not their words. And once we got that down, because we were trying to work up to a white teenage girl, they explicitly had this hierarchy of victim. The Son of Sam and Ted Bundy both talked about how they always had this fantasy of this really sexy woman who they could murder. But they would always just get like really worked up and settle for whoever came along, which is remarkable whenever like Ted Bundy always felt like he was settling. And some of those women that he murdered were some of the most like culturally assigned beautiful women, right? The way we reconcile their crimes is also a way of reconciling rules, right? Like everyone makes this narrative about this woman who wronged Ted Bundy when he was in college, but then you find out that he was killing children long before that when he was a child himself and that it actually had nothing to do with being wronged by a girlfriend. But that's the narrative that gets perpetuated because that also makes us feel like we live in a world where rules protect us, right? I've never been cruel to an ex So, I've never created a serial killer. Yeah. Right? I'm a good mom. So, regardless of the content that my child is consuming, they are not going to murder another person.
1: Right. And I think, like, the part where this book was, I think, scary and titillating in that way was like thinking about the Commandments killer in London. But as soon as we end up at the house party and the idea that the killer has either followed Kate. Or as part of a known aristocracy inside of like 10 people that we have all met at dinner. Yeah. It became immediately less scary. And I had to like think a lot about why like a faceless like ripper type character is scarier but also more fascinating. And I think it's this idea where it's like if you can puzzle it out, you get to live. Right. Or if you can puzzle it out, you win the thing and you're smart and safe. Right.
0: Yeah. And your way of puzzling it out, especially in a text, is like you've read Agatha Christie. Right.
1: I knew immediately once the house party had happened, I was like, these are the i'm going to eliminate right it immediately became a game of clue which is less fun when you don't have tim curry in it but
0: does this book realize that it doesn't have tim curry in it this book has this like really violent scenes of death it talks about being able to smell the blood of a murder scene before entering the murder scene and then it has this like whimsical it's wildly uneven Wildly
1: uneven. Yes. Thousand and ten percent. And like the fact like I didn't even read the back of the book before I purchased a copy. Me neither. It says rom-com on the back. And I was like, how can you have a serious murder story also be a rom-com?
0: Because like rom-coms, you don't smell the blood. If someone dies, it's kind of comical, right? But also, I would like to reassure anyone who wants to do this kind of novel in the future, you can do it with a bloodless crime. Totally. Totally. Many, many people have done it in the past. There was a whole era of Hollywood where you couldn't really do murder and they made really great noirs and mysteries. (laughs) Like you do not need to have a grisly murder. And I think the thing that freaks me the fuck out about my relationship with true crime, which is my own shit to deal with clearly because I talked about it for fucking ever, but like further, like the normalization that can occur when you model this stuff up. Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. And like, it's so
1: right to call it wildly uneven. So we're all at the Lake District party. And suddenly this is a story about this house that her good friend Val has won in a card game that wasn't entailed and belonged to this lesser known but kind of famous British poet who was like a student of Wordsworth. And so like, suddenly it becomes like this idea that there might be a legitimate heir out there who's going to come try to get the house. But then even in this like very weird ass aside, Catherine's like, I guess. Yes, I won't explain the idea of an unentailed home and its grounds and that you can't contest it after the will's been read. And I was like, yes, OK, that's a historical fact. But like that takes all of the tension out of this potential air killing people to get to the house. Right, because like that means that Val's never in danger. That means that Catherine's never in danger. Like what the fuck? And like the aside is half a sentence and you just take all the air out of the balloon.
0: For a type of murderer that has been done so many Many times popular culture to varying degrees of success, but to some really heightened levels of success. God, this book is boring. Oh my God, it's so boring. Oh my God. The moment it takes her, so she gets taken to a maze, right? Yep. The killer catches up to our heroine just as she's about to zero in on him. Classic mystery novel stuff. Takes her into a maze. The first thing she talks about is being surprised that the maze isn't more overgrown than it looks outside. Do you think that's enough of a, no, no, no. It goes on to describe that while some of the hedges are leggy, most of it really punctures.
1: The balloon is so boring for a murder mystery rom com. It is one of the most. I kid you not, Morgan. I fell asleep twice reading this, and it was like in the <laughs> middle of the day because like I fell asleep reading it one night, and I was like, okay, I guess I shouldn't like try to be reading this at ten thirty. And then I fucking fell asleep in the middle of the day. It was like noon, and I took an hour long nap. And I'm like, if I am this fucking bored, we have so many problems. So this brings us to like one of my issues with this text Where it's like you've got murder and you've got a romance. These are things that lots of people like
0: put them together we've got like an explosive combo potentially nor roberts we haven't even talked about it right we had a lot of difficulty the two of us Mm -hmm. when we read that book our problems with the murder were very much the two of us yes but the stakes i did not appreciate it at the time but the stakes were appropriate to the text and what happens in the text
1: And like, it was scary enough to add a sharp edge to the titillation to the sex scene where it's like, this isn't scary enough. The whiff of death,
0: the whiff of death,
1: right? The whiff of death, like the idea that you have a strong protector, your good cop who's going to figure this out before like the murderer can get to you. And like none of that happens. They even have this fight where she like goes to interview another victim's family and he catches her there and is like really upset. And then they go home and they're like yelling about it. But they like are yelling all of their emotions like immediately immediately like I was scared that you were gonna die and she's like I wasn't gonna die and you have to trust me and he's like I'm gonna learn to trust you and then they're yelling at each other and then they immediately fall into bed and I was like well you just took all of the spark and zazz out of this like right what am I supposed to do with this
0: so murder and romance has been done better than this yes I assume it's been done well it's not my particular tipple even though I am big time consumer of true crime and horror Murder in the Victorians, right? That makes sense. Jack the Ripper, we're in England, right? That all makes sense. I couldn't help but to think of Behind Closed Doors by Jude Lucens, which we talked about, which also has to do with a reporter, also has to do with a Victorian England, also has a lot of exposition. Like, I noticed it, but I didn't mind it. Because you weren't bored. right. Right.
1: Exposition for exposition's sake. And like, we've talked about this on the show before. And one of the things that really occurred to me and what I have written in all over my notes is like, this person doesn't trust the reader. Right. Right. So there'll be like a thing where like, Caro's enthusiasm was just like a part of her being. And then literally the next thing is dialogue of Catherine being like, "Caro, your enthusiasm is just who you are. And I'm like, you literally
0: just told me that though. Like, But also like, they had to tell this story about why the detective was a good person. Thou doth protest human much about how he discovered this beaten woman but then wasn't able to do his job you know because of all the red tape here's the thing like true crime loves rules but hates red tape and doesn't understand there's no distinction (laughs) right totally like this idea of like moral right and moral wrong like is just as much a construct as fucking oh what's the word for paperwork
1: bureaucracy judicious editing
0: what is the editing culture of romance. Because I've been to romance things, events, and I've met people who self-identify as editors, but I've also gotten the impression from social media that they don't do the same job as other genre editors. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, and I think, honestly, this talk about a hierarchy, it really depends on where you are, right? Like, category romance writers, as far as my understanding, have a really good relationship with their editors, but they're also cranking something out, so it's, like, much more, more of a trust team effort and editors then have the, the beats we need you to hit in this particular one. Like if you're going to be writing about like a billionaire or like whatever. And then the further you get into like the trade paperbacks, it like, really depends. Full disclosure, my sister-in-law is a romance editor at Amazon. And I know that like she has relationships with her authors where she has a much lighter touch than in other cases.
0: I mean, we have an editor, right? We do. We put a lot of trust in that. His name is Nick. If you're just joining us for the first time. Nick's great. I remember when we first started the show and Adam said, Adam is my brother. My brother is also does creative. And I said, well, he like cuts our conversations and like shapes the episode he was like whoa that's a lot of trust to bring in a third party to like say you know what is the best part of of this conversation and what's the shape of this episode right and it is like i understand why people are freaked out objectively by editing but i never understood it as optional
1: And I think like you and I have an understanding of both how we work and how our brains work. And like there wasn't ever going to be an option where you and I could be unedited, truly, because it takes us a long time sometimes to get to the nugget of what we want to say. And this book feels like that, too.
0: But also, like, can you trust yourself to see yourself clearly clearly? No. No, right? Like, period. Of course you can edit yourself. Yes. Of course you can. And you should.
1: And you should. Absolutely. But I mean, I think about this, like, especially because, like, I read a lot of fan fiction and it's so obvious when somebody has a beta reader, but it also, like, it makes a difference who the fuck your beta reader is.
0: Absolutely.
1: Right? Because if it's a friend who's like, I love everything you did. This was so great. I just shifted this spliced comma so that it wasn't spliced anymore. And I fixed this one friend of a sentence and I'm like there are typos out the wazoo and this character has shown up out of nowhere when they were somewhere else 10 seconds ago you know so you need to have somebody who has some objectivity on the work that you are doing it doesn't have to be a stranger but it really shouldn't be your baby
0: sister maybe your baby sister is the best possible candidate to be honest like wise cracking and like sees you objectively but like yeah the person who will give you a kidney but only- only if they're sure you're going to use it properly. Exactly. I love that you brought up trade paperbacks because I had a moment where I was like if this was a trade paperback, if it had been limited, my Kindle estimated it would take me about four hours to read this. If it had been a one hour or even a two hour read, this would have been so good. Even without all of the deeper interrogation, right? Like it would have been cleaner, tighter, faster. It would have been a seal sliding in (laughs) the arctic ocean yeah this would have been a much better story i think mysteries any kind of mystery is going to suffer for extraneous detail
1: yes I think that's super true. And like where two genres meet at the headwaters, like this being like mystery and romance meeting, because both of them really deal exquisitely in anticipation. They're similar kinds of anticipation, but they're also really different. And so it's like I need to anticipate where the beats of my murders are going to show up. And I need to anticipate when and where I'm going to get details about the murderer. And I also now need to be playing ball with the anticipation of my couple here and like the beats were all over the place
0: all over there's this real preciousness about the text in romance that i don't think really is respected in other genres jonathan saffron foyer like his first draft is always a mess and that his editor needs more credit you know i have a background in film and coen brothers movies do not exist without their editor and you just think about the idea of like sitting in a room with someone and meticulously going through hours and hours and hours of footage. Like, of course it matters who you can even stand to be in that situation with. Editing is such a. important important relationship in any kind of creative project. To me, that's what I've always understood. But in romance, so much of the expectation is that the author will do their own editing. I mean, I have this bookmark we got at RWA that has editing tips, but it's all targeted towards the writer of the book. The other thing about editing romance, that's job creation, y'all. You should be paying someone. And maybe that's where the trust comes from. I am paying you to perform a service.
1: Sure, but I think you're actually pinging on a much Broader surface now, where it's like indie publishing, self publishing came for romance much harder and much faster than it did for the other genres. Like, indie publishing certainly exists in sci fi and it certainly exists in mystery, but it does not exist as the behemoth that it does in romance. And like, here's the other part of that where it's like, that has caveats, that has real drawbacks, that has real consequences. But part of it also was that like romance was a really insular. Stronghold that was not interested in helping other voices attain contracts that would have come with good editors right it was really hard to break in and so like self-publishing had to jump onto the scene in a particular way and that had other like good consequences right like we wouldn't have had necessarily some of the authors that we have now without self-publishing including jude Lucens.
0: well but even before that kathleen widowis refusing to have her text (laughs) pared down right Right. I mean, I don't think the flame and the flower. <laughs> Maybe we deserved a better revolutionary text, right? Sure. I think that's an excellent point. But if she had let someone edit, who knows what important parts meaning the premarital sex, air quotes, would have been edited out. Hummingbird. Ugh. But hummingbird is perfect.
1: Hummingbird is perfect. There isn't an extraneous word in that text. What are you talking about?
0: You brought up fan fiction. The great fanfics have a lot of beta readers. Yes. And a beta reader is an editor. Yes. And I know people, like, if I wanted to write a book... I know of people who I think of as great writers. The person who does the artwork for the show, as great as her artwork is, she's one of the best writers I've ever read. Not that I've known, but that I've ever read. The person who writes our episode descriptions and edits our episodes, you know, I just implicitly trust him because I think he's a great writer. He understands how stuff works.
1: He is a good writer.
0: You, you are more than a great writer. You are specifically a great editor oh thank you (laughs) but I know that I could of course I would pay you I could get away with paying you Isabeau a hundred bucks there are great editors out there who do not come exclusively with a publisher's contract and I just wish people would seek them out give them cash under the table and have the best possible book maybe you feel like some sort of like auteur possessiveness of your thing. But I don't think there is any truly great work that doesn't have more than one fingerprint on it.
1: I think that's so exactly right and I think you're right to say that romance feels really precious about itself and like this keeps coming up whenever we talk about romance criticism and criticism writ large and like how this particular genre is both really hungry slash resistant to professional criticism and I think this is also part of it, right? Like if you have an editor, if you have several editors, if you've gone several rounds, you just begin to feel less precious about your workaday text. You don't feel less precious about your characters. You maybe don't even feel less precious about the plot itself. But like where the beats fall, like making the story tighter or giving it places to breathe, trusting your reader. All of that comes with having other people say, is this what you really meant? Or should this come later? Or you've already said this, so we don't need it again here.
0: Or even just like, this is a dumb comma. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Isabel, if I didn't have you read my shit, people should see the amount of dashes. You do love dashes. I love m dashes, too. I also don't understand, like, the confidence it takes to put out a story without having someone you know will be honest with you, read it. I mean, I think that's the double consequence of like
1: fear. And also like in this particular author's work, I don't know what to do with this because after reading this, I was like, okay, this person has not written very many books. And I go back through this person's catalog and it is like half a decade deep. You haven't read any of their other books. No, I hadn't heard of this author until I got this one. But they have they have a deep catalog. And I'm curious about what those other books look like that are more traditional romances rather than this one that didn't get as much play in the media. And I also wonder about like that, like that this appeared on like BuzzFeed and Booklist and...
0: Well, you know, people always fret. People always fret about their sophomore album, right? When they've had a really successful debut. This is for this author, the first book after their first big book is what I understood because there's a lot of praise for another book in the back cover like Kirkus reviews and things like that and this is a book with a lot of ideas but not a lot of like story and not a lot of character and not a lot of setting to support these ideas. But the setting also brings me, like one thing I really enjoyed about this book and that was brought home to me, I'm saying that with a caveat because I think this comes from not just being a romance reader, but being someone who has read romance theory as such it is today. That This isn't really about the historical moment, but historical romance gives us so much space as readers and as writers, I assume, to explore ourselves,
1: And this is somebody who really wanted to like live in a historical moment.
0: The anachronisms abound, right? The anachronisms abound in this text. And they tell us so much.
1: Yeah, I think you're right to say that like the two characters of My Favorite Murder show up. And I think it's right to say that like a very good cop version of like Dennis Quaid or Commissioner Gordon or like, you know, name a good cop here is also very much in this text.
0: Or the idea that, like... Here's an anachronism. The idea that someone would be socially shunned at this particular point in history for marrying their brother in law after their husband died. Yeah. Not just common practice, expected practice in certain. Yeah. Because, like, what else is she going to do? You know? Right. One of the things I learned that's really interesting brewers, it was expected that the wife, if her husband died, she would marry the brewmeister, which was often the brother in law, because she would inherit the brewery. This is specific to Schlitz, my favorite cheap beer. She would inherit the brewery and she would give it to the brewmeister so that the family recipe would stay in a very close quarters. Nobody thought anything of it because lots of other people were marrying their brothers in laws, you know, like this was considered wildly progressive.
1: Totally. I mean, people were dying of tetanus and the common cold. You know what I mean? People were dropping dead all the time. But there would have been more crimes of passion. And, like, I think that's one of the things where this book pays a lot of lip service to this idea that women are in very precarious positions, that they are in thrall and in power to their husbands, which is also historically true and, like, certainly true to a certain extent under living in the
0: patriarchy in this moment. Well, there's that moment where our hero is very insistent with Val, the good male hetero friend of our heroine, he like, listen, did her deceased husband ever hit her? But hitting your wife was defined really broadly. Totally. This idea of laying a hand on a woman was not what it is today. Slapping your wife with an open hand was considered, like, touching her. Kosher, yeah. Yeah, kosher, exactly. And, like,
1: Val has this very clear moment where he's like, you know, there are ways of hurting a person that doesn't leave bruises, which is, like, you know, like beating somebody with an orange, but, like, also the idea that he was constantly criticizing her, that nothing that she could do was good enough, that, like, he was killing her by, like, a thousand paper cuts. And so, like, his ins- that, like, did he beat her? I'm like, she was dead in that marriage anyway. Does it matter if it was physical?
0: That makes, like, all of the regressive politic of this book inexcusable because it's clear that it's drenched in anachronism. And the regressive politic, meaning, like, there's a specific instance where our hero and our heroine finally give in to their passions and he leaves a love bite behind her ear. Love that touch. Not explored enough, the ear in romance. I love tiny body parts that we don't think of, right? Go figure. So he leaves a love bite behind her ear. Then our strong hetero friend says one of my least favorite phrases in the English language, which is she's like a sister to me and punches him in the jaw. And first of all, people who say she's like a sister to me, do you feel sexually possessive of your sister? Do you feel sexually possessive of your daughter? Do you feel comforted by the idea that a man in your life who is your brother or father is sexually possessive of you? If so, examine that. I mean, examine it. I feel very confident being like, you need an editor of your life, a.k.a. a therapist. (laughs) So anyways, he punches him in the jaw, pops him in the jaw. Our heroine finds out and she's disgusted and she's like, oh, violence of any kind. But the text itself is so in love with the fact that Val punched him, our hero, Andrew, in the jaw in defense of, want to call her Karen, in defense of Kate's honor. So that Andrew would
1: know that she wasn't
0: friendless. It's not just that she's friendless. She has a friend who is a heterosexual male
1: who is going to come to physical blows with you if you don't do the right thing
0: but also her value is beyond sexual right because a heterosexual male who doesn't want to fuck her thinks she's important and that my friends is the fucking patriarchy the fact that we have gender period is the patriarchy but that right there is the patriarchy
1: Also, for a book that's so dedicated to this idea of not being possessed, the HEA here isn't that she gets to be the merry widow with her good cop, paramour,
0: which is her dream, her personal dream, and not something that is a barrier to their existence. She even goes over what would happen if she got pregnant, whoopsie-daisy, even though she can't. There is absolutely no need for them to get married. And he
1: even comes to the point where he's like, you know, I accept your choice. I'll have you however you'll have me, which I'm like, okay, fine, whatever. And then she's like, no, I love you so much. This murder has proved to me that we need to enter the bonds of matrimony and I'll literally become legally dead. You'll sign a special piece of paper where I get to keep my newspaper. But like everything else and all of my fears aside, my foundational personality trauma... Totally forgotten in the arms of a good man. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? This whole book has been leading up against this and like it is solved in two pages?
0: What? And the book gave itself so many outs to that ending. So many outs. I will say, this is very personal, but I'm willing to share it. There was a long point in my life where I was like, getting married is about a practical decision, right? But that practical decision doesn't actually exist. Like the world has made enough accommodations for those of us living in sin. Like I am on my partner's health insurance. If I were to have a child with my partner, that would be a bigger commitment, perhaps, in the eyes of the law, at least, than merely marrying them. But the idea that you would get married for any reason besides the romantic idea of it. But the romantic idea of it is so powerful and so rich and so fascinating. If you are denying that you love that fantasy... When you choose to get married, I feel like you're missing something. Hmm, that's interesting. Father John Misty's album about his first year of marriage is a great example of it, even though I realize that Father John Misty is partially a cartoon character. That's interesting.
1: I mean, as a married. I guess I can speak to it as a non-married. How long have you and John been together since you met? We've been together for 15 years. We've been married for seven.
0: Yes. I just think that's really lovely, actually. Yes. John and
1: I are high school sweethearts.
0: I just think the lead often gets buried on the fact that you married your high school sweetheart. I did. My beau and I have been together for 10 years.
1: Yeah. John and I actually just celebrated our seventh wedding anniversary uh, just yesterday.
0: Can I ask you, did you acknowledge the 15 years when you acknowledged the seven years?
1: Oh, yeah. We actually don't celebrate our wedded anniversary. Like our wedding was like a huge party that we just like really wanted to celebrate with our friends. But like we don't generally ever celebrate it. We only celebrate it if we couldn't celebrate our dating anniversary, which is in November, uh, which is the one that we celebrate.
0: I really feel like I'm kissing our producer's ass now. But talk about a beautiful wedding. So fun. They got married in a ceremony, just the two of them, and then had a party Brandon and I went to no less than seven weddings that year.
1: Jesus Christ.
0: But our our producers and his, well, you know her. Lovely lady. Fabulous wife was the tops, the tits of that wedding season.
1: I do love going to other people's weddings as a married. It's such a joy. Do you ever want to
0: redo it?
1: I wanted to have a big party for 15 this year, but obviously COVID reasons.
0: Well, a seven-year itch party also would have been fun, but... Right.
1: It was like, it was going to be good. I think we'll probably do a big party for 10 just because like, I want to have a big dance party. I want to get a fancy dress. I want to...
0: You love a party for yourself, my dude.
1: I do. It's not like I ever want to recreate prom. That isn't what I'm doing, but I want to create an adult version of a dance where everybody has to get dressed up there are a bunch of drinks that everybody can have and it's just like fellowship and like people getting drunk and like being dancing there aren't enough places where I can do karaoke and dance and like those are the things that I want to do with a hundred of my closest friends
0: in my three months of seven weddings I honestly came to realize that I could have not gone to them (laughs) like I could have sent a gift, which by the way, if you're thinking of inviting me to your wedding, my gift is always cash. Nice noise. But I think like, People do want to celebrate you. They do want an excuse. I did want to get dressed up. And I also made a rule for myself that I wasn't going to buy any new clothes for any of the weddings. I was going to recycle the clothes I already had and make them special, right? Like, it's so fun. And like, God bless you if you create that space for people who love you to celebrate you in a really big way, assuming you believe in God. I mean, you don't even have to believe in God. I believe in the god as described in Mermaid's Kiss exclusively. I mean,
1: yeah, that is the god that I will accept. But like, I went to this amazing wedding. What's the neighborhood just off of West Loop? It's like a bunch of warehouses that have been converted into like weird art spaces and like gardens.
0: Oh, they created a new name for it.
1: It was amazing. And like there were all these like crazy art installations and like carousel horses. And like the food was all like funny and like weird. And, like, everybody was having so much fun, and one of the gifts that this couple did is they had a live band, which was super fun, but they, like, made the live band do covers of very specific songs for very specific people in the audience, and when, like, your song came up, you, like, (laughs) got everybody onto the dance floor and, like, fucking jammed out. It was, like, genius. Oh, my God. What a beautiful gift to
0: give your celebrants. Right! It's a cliche, but a wedding is mostly for the other people, right? (laughs) And when those personal touches, like, go off like that, mwah, chef's kiss, what, uh. It's not just an expression of love to your significant other. It's an expression of love to the the people in your life, right? We have so few excuses. Whatever. The community. God damn it. I'm so sorry about the diatribe. Sexiest part. Sexiest part. You go first, Isabel.
1: Okay, my sexiest part, I'm afraid that I might take yours, so prepare thyself oh shit so they're going through the stuff in the folly because they're trying to figure out this connection to the potential heir and why the murderer would potentially be the heir of this estate and our heroine Catherine pinches her finger in the hinge of a crate and she does this thing where she's like ow 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 and there's this like actually very beautiful discussion of like why you shake your hand when you hurt or like why you hold your toe when you step it and he like takes her glove off very Slowly and in sepia tone, and like kisses the pad of her finger. And it's the first time that they're like crossed that physical barrier. And he just like sucks the pad of her finger into his mouth to kiss it away. And she just says, Thank you. And he's like, Anytime. And I'm like,
0: <laughs> I actually had a note on that exact scene that makes it not my sexiest part where I wrote the book uses the phrase licks her wound, but it's not actually a wound, it's just a swollen finger. So, like, it sounds more subversive than it actually
1: is. It actually was. That's totally true. I also have that marked.
0: Because I know you've seen movies where, like, someone cuts open their hand and the lover, like, licks their hand. I have seen movies like that. Which one was it? I couldn't think of it in the moment.
1: Showboat? Is that the one you're talking about? Because he, like, showboat?
0: No, but does that happen in showboat?
1: Oh, totally. Like,
0: that happens in showboat?
1: She cuts her hand and he, like, licks it.
0: New merch. New merch.
1: But, like, that's super intense because she's actually a black woman passing as white and, like, the cops are coming. And so he licks her wound. And then he goes, if they're going to take you away now, they have to take me away because it's the one drop rule, which is fucked.
0: Holy shit. Yeah. I did not realize how subversive (laughs) Shobo was.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, loving that man of mine.
0: Oh my God. We are going to add Showboat to our DVD collection, which currently includes Crash and The Night Porter, which you can watch on HBO now. Hmm. I saw this great Criterion Closet with the lead actress who was in Night Porter and a director who directed her in her most recent film. Very good movie, but sufficiently vague, so I don't have to remember any titles or names. And they were in the Criterion Closet, and he just like plopped out the Night Porter. (laughs) Which, by the way, this actress, she's now in her 70s, but in the Night Porter, she is a concentration camp inmate. She has her hair cropped, but she has this sexual affair with a Nazi officer, and in this very famous scene, she's wearing pants and suspenders with no shirt, and the suspenders go over her nipples, and she has opera-length black leather gloves and a Nazi cap, and she lip-syncs this song on the gramophone. It's a very sexual film. And... What I loved was he's in the closet with, you know, this actress and he just plops down the night porter and he's like, when was the last time you watched this?
1: (laughs) And she's like, since it fucking came
0: out? Yeah, she's like, never. She was like, it's a very good film. I've never seen it. (laughs) Amazing. And I was like, that's real. Okay, my sexiest part. May I read it to you? Please. Here we are. Why am I almost naked, but you haven't removed so much as your neckcloth? She asked with a raised brow. Perhaps as incentive, she lifted her hands to her breasts but that only made him want to cover her body with his body more. Still, he knew he'd been given an order. In far less time than he'd spent removing her garments, he untied, unbuttoned, unlaced, and undid his own clothes until he was standing naked before her. Her eyes gleamed in appreciation as he crawled over to her and untied her drawers and pulled them off in one fluid motion. When she moved to unfasten her garters, he said roughly, keep the stockings on. Nice. Nice. I want to point out that in the Victorian period, stockings were socks and keeping the socks on during lovemaking is the best way to do it. Disagree. Socks on. Maybe in winter and you don't have flannel sheets. Yes, I do. I have had flannel sheets. Keep the socks on. Here is my argument. Okay. Nudity is not titillating when it is as Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Evil. (laughs) Eden? Sure, whatever your progressive hippie bullshit wants to call it. That is not sexy. It was not sexy until they became ashamed and slightly covered it. Fishnets, etc. If you keep on the socks, you get all of the skin-to-skin contact that you crave. And all of the weird titillation of leaving your socks on. I have said this before. I still stand by it. I don't think the listeners know there are some things in this show that I have come to regret saying. Leave the socks on. I stand by it. What's your weirdest part, Morgan? Well, we talked about a lot of my weirdest parts. Weirdest part, cartoon cover. It's sexually explicit. It's not like crazy, steamy, right? It's not priest. It's not even... What was that book we read that everybody liked? Get a Life.
1: Oh, Get a Life, Chloe Brown.
0: Get a Life, Chloe Brown. It's not even that explicit. I mean, the sex scenes are, you know, titillating and steamy, you know, but it's not wild sex. But the scenes of murder with a cartoon cover... I had no idea that it was going to be as bloody as it was. And I know that I have said things about cartoon covers in the past. This is an example of when a marketing tool disrupts the expectation. Like, maybe this book would have been different for me if I had expected a Nora Roberts style story or been prepared for it by the cover. But the cover is lavender. It features a cartoon Victorian woman holding a parasol and I think she has red hair, which in the book she has dark hair.
1: She is also like a pastel color. Yes! Like her skin is the pastel color. She doesn't have eyes.
0: She has white. It's actually just white. She doesn't have eyes. She has red hair, which her character doesn't have. She's meeting this gentleman in a top hat and a cane. Neither of them have actual facial features beyond and nose because they're presented in silhouette
1: also he wasn't wearing a top hat and cane like class has made a huge deal of
0: yes it's teal and pink which might be one of the most twee color combinations the only thing that would make it more twee is if it was kelly green and pink
1: and if there were like a french bulldog or a pug
0: i don't know if it's my weirdest part because i've talked so much about my weird parts but it is an additionally weird part what's your weirdest part is
1: it's weird to me that this appeared on so many lists, but it appeared on so many lists because there's marketing behind it. Like, this isn't about the virtues of this text being very strong. This is a huge ploy on the part of a team to get this book in the hands of people. And like, it worked! We got it! And now I'm just like, murk, murk, murk.
0: Perhaps the author, their other books are really deserving. This book itself, which brings us to our final part, I would say this is a no-man's for me.
1: Oh, this is a massive no-man's for me. Like, it can't be a woman's if i fall asleep twice
0: no also like your metaphor about petting a cat the wrong way <laughs> I mean, there are so many points at which I noted, like, too much exposition. This makes me feel uncomfortable. He says at one point her nose was too narrow and her lips were too small to be considered beautiful. It was just so specific.
1: In that moment, I have in my margins, because I also highlighted that, I was like, oh, she's trying to tell me that she's unconventional and she's just described, like, Meryl Streep.
0: Right. Who is, like, I mean, like, Dario Argento said she wasn't that beautiful, but, like.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: Compared to whom?
1: (laughs) Right. And like you can say that someone is unconventionally beautiful and still like arresting.
0: Well, it's also like this book has so many claims to progressive politics, but they can't even accept that like beauty is a construct, which is like one of the most easy things to accept because we celebrate so many unconventionally beautiful people. You personally have probably felt titillated by an unconventionally beautiful person.
1: Angelica Houston? Oh my God, like marry me, Morticia.
0: Yes, but even like not in the model way, like not even like an interesting beauty, like someone who just seems like, I am sure you know someone in your life who's got a belly and has like a real, (laughs) I don't know how else to put it if I'm describing myself a real Midwestern corn fed look that you're not (laughs) also attracted to, right? Physical beauty is such a construct and you can feel it in the way you feel pulled to different kinds of people yeah for all of its progressivism this book really like fetishizes this idea of male-on-male violence and sexual possession by non-sexual partners but even sexual possession by sexual partners is kind of sickening in 2020 2021 when this episode will be coming out but i all of its claims to progressive politics really fall apart i mean you could like fucking forget everything about the true crime aspect of it the anachronisms in this text reveal so much about what this text holds to be true and they are not the same values that are attested to oftentimes in mainstream romance landia. although like an attestation doesn't mean a genuine belief.
1: And I think that's what this all felt like right? It's saying the right things but without like enough of the oomph or critical inquiry or in the same way that like.
0: It's saying the right things but then it's saying the wrong things and putting them on the same level so like why would I bother
1: right because like then it's just inconsistent I wanted to like it like it would have been all of these things for me it's like I brought you your favorite cookie and then they just like brought all the ingredients and like threw it on the ground I'm like well that's not my cookie though that's not what that
0: is (laughs) that's not a cookie I feel like some, like, amount of rest and nuance and mixing and layering. You know, I made a list of things I liked about this book because I find in my personal life that negative reviews are as helpful to me finding things that I like as positive reviews. So I was like, well, what are some positives? I like that the detective in this novel, Andrew, does not make assumptions and actually holds the heroine back when she makes assumptions, right? I'm immediately gonna shit on it. But then the text itself is like... No, that assumption was correct. The twins are both in on it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just deeply disappointing. (laughs) Yeah. But I have to say there's something about the way this book was marketed that makes me want to read her other earlier books and be like, well, what was there? Hopefully something.
1: That's so funny because from Hoopla, I was looking through her back catalog and like I read a couple of them and I was like, well, this one sounds like I would be interested in it. And so like this is like definitely a book where it's like the ingredients were there. Like I just don't believe that that many people were wrong. I just think this book is a misfire for me. So I went to the library website and I got another one and I'm going to read it at some point.
0: Give it a shot. I would not read this book. I would not recommend this book to people. Strike it off your lists. I have to say, like, the politic of this book makes me weary of her other books.
1: We'll see. She has an entire series on widows, so I wanted to try another widow.
0: Oh. So no man's for me. No man's for me. With that, loosen your stays.
1: But never your principles. Mm -hmm. Mwah!
0: Whoa, golly gee, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance.
1: Womance is hosted by Isabelle that's me.
0: And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin.
1: Our web mistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzak.
0: And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best.
1: If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at mail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com.
0: You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast. Until next week.